Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We are a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio. Today's show will be on understanding the IVF success statistics that are given on both the CDC and the SART site and what people utilize for selecting clinics. Uh, I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creative Creating a Family Radio Show is underwritten by our corporate fund, sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, costs can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring is now offering a savings card for their endometrin vaginal inserts. This instant savings card offers up to $50 savings each month on your endometrin prescription for eligible patients. You can ask your doctor for more details. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. So you can sign up for our weekly newsletter at any page of creatingafamily.org on the top left-hand side of the page. Uh, And uh, we would love to have you join us. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week. A recent blog you might enjoy was titled, Secondary Infertility is a Lonely Place to Be. We uh, join in on the discussion of that blog at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, including Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We also have Reproductive Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, where they blend scientific expertise and leadership with patient-centered care. They understand that one size does not fit all and will personalize your care based on your individual needs. They have seven offices throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania. As you just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. And one way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you're looking for a sperm bank or if you're looking for an infertility clinic or an infertility doctor or a therapist or a donor or a surrogacy agency or an egg bank, please make your first stop to Creating a Family database on the service provider page of our website. You can search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, just a a whole host of criteria that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. 
Like we said at the beginning on today's Radio Creating a Family show, we'll be talking about how to understand IVF success statistics when choosing an IVF cl- clinic. We tell people to check out the Center for Disease Control stats before selecting an infertility clinic, but how in the world do you make sense of these numbers and which ones are truly important and can they be manipulated? Our guests are Dr. Lawrence Udolph. He is a reproductive endocrinologist with Genetics and IVF Institute and a professor at the University of Maryland. He is the lead physician at GIVF on donor egg IVF and egg vitrification. We also have Dr. David Adamson. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and medical director of PAMF, Fertility Physicians of Northern California, and founder and CEO of Advanced Reproductive Care, a national network of fertility clinics. He was past president of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the Society for the Assisted Reproductive Technologies. Welcome, Dr. Adamson and Udolf, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Yes, thank you for the opportunity to join in today's discussion. Well, it should be a good one, actually. I think there is a lot of uh, confusion uh, because we get a lot of questions on on the CDC uh, statistics or the statistics success statistics listed at CDC. Um, the Center for Disease Control (CDC) uh, lists fertility clinic success rates. So does the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, also known as SART (SART). They also list fertility clinic success stats. Um, and by the way, just so that uh, it, the unfortunately the URLs for both of those where these are listed are not easy and are confusing to say on the air. We link to both of them uh, on our uh, how to find an IVF um, not IVF listen to me how to find an infertility clinic page on our website. Uh, it's a very popular page on our site. The easiest way to get there is go to our site, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word on the, there's a blue horizontal menu across the top of the page, hover over the word infertility, click on resources, and click on finding an infertility doctor or clinic. Uh, and then you will, we will link to the correct page to find both the CDC as well as the SART statistics. Um, first of all, I have a question. Uh, uh, Dr. Adamson, are the uh, statistics the same? Um, the, what, the statistics that are listed on the CDC site and the SART site, are they the same stats? Well, they're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. And the reason they're not the same is that uh, SART uh, tends to have a little bit more recent uh, data because it takes the CDC longer to go through their whole process to get the uh, data published, so the SART results are often a little more up-to-date. Um, at the same time, not all clinics report uh, to uh, SART, and there are some clinics that do not report to SART that do report to the Centers for Disease Control. So the CDC numbers can be a little bit more comprehensive, and then there are still a few clinics that don't report at all. So the numbers are not exactly the same, but they're very similar. Okay, and why is it that, I mean, uh, uh you're right. I mean, every time I've checked, SART is one year more current. But they're still two years behind. I think the latest they're giving is 2011. Uh, Dr. Udolph, why? Why are and, – and I should add CDC, the latest stats uh, I checked this morning were 2010. Correct. Uh, well, uh, at least for SART, I believe 2011 is, is available. Yeah, 2011. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, um, well, my understanding, not being part of the inner workings of it, is just a matter of time. Of course, we have to wait for all the patients to deliver, collect all the data, has to be inputted and analyzed, and uh, you know, finally made in, in, into the, the form that you would see on the website. And 
Uh, and so at least um, uh, I had always assumed that, it, that people were working on that as quickly as, as they could, but it's just there's an inherent time lag in putting all that together. And, well, it is, and it is terribly comprehensive, so I can see that it would take a while. Um, I'm going to have us walk through just a typical uh, uh, statistics page for a clinic and uh, so we can understand. But before I do that, uh, we got a question that I, it's one I wouldn't have thought to ask. It's from Michael. He says, uh, we have been using your resources to select a clinic. So let me first say thank you. Uh, I see where they list GIFT and ZIFT on the pages. What are these and are they something that we should look at when choosing a clinic? It's a, it's actually a good question, one that I honestly I never pay any attention to that. So, uh, Dr. Udolph, can you uh, should we pay any attention to the what is uh, what does it mean GIFT and ZIFT? It is listed um, right under IVF when it takes, talks about type of and the word by the way everybody they use it, the the acronym is ART assisted reproductive technology ART. So when you go to the statistics page, you will see at the top it will say type of ART. Reproductive, under, uh, reproductive technology. Under that, we have IVF and then GIFT, ZIF, lifted, listed. Okay, Dr. Udolph, what is GIFT and ZIFT? Well, GIFT and ZIFT um, are older uh, technologies used uh, in assisted reproductive technology. So I think the direct answer to the question in, in current day, uh, I don't think that that has much bearing. Uh, I'm really not aware personally of any clinics that do uh, those procedures anymore or, or not of any significant numbers. GIFT referred to gamete interfallopian transfer and ZIFT was zygote interfallopian transfer. So these were the days where we used to uh, do a laparoscopic procedure, the surgical procedure with the scope through a small incision through the belly button and insert either eggs and sperm or zygotes uh, early fertilized uh, eggs uh, into the fallopian tubes. Um, but it's been quite a number of years since uh, that was the standard of care for uh, uh, assisted reproductive, reproductive technology. So, um, you know, as I say, I think the direct answer is that um, the, the focus really these days is on IVF. Okay. Uh, all right. So uh, the, one of the first things you see on the statistics page on either the uh, CDC site or the uh, SART, SART site, um, is the type of assisted reproductive technology, type of art. And um, as you just pointed out, Dr. Udolph, almost always you will see 100% or close to 100% for IVF. Um, and then there is uh, another section uh, under the uh, assisted reproductive technology art cycle profile, and it talks about procedural factors. And under that is listed uh, with ICSI, unstimulated, used gestational carrier, used PGD, and used ESET. Okay, Dr. Adamson, can you walk us through what does that mean? Um, the procedural uh, factors are different uh, types of approaches to using the assisted reproductive technologies. ICSI, uh, which is performed uh, in 2010 in about two-thirds of patients, is uh, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And this is a procedure in which at the time of uh, in vitro fertilization, a single sperm is taken and injected into a single egg in order to get fertilization. The other way to get fertilization is to put somewhere between uh, 50 to 100,000 uh, sperm with the eggs and let the, let the sperm penetrate the egg. 
Ixie uh, has been around a little over 20 years now and was first done for serious or severe male factor infertility for men with very poor sperm. But what's happened over time is that the indications for it have expanded a little bit. Uh, there is some criticism of this, and there are questions about whether ICSI is actually performed too often. But it's probably true that uh, about 50% of cycles at least have a very real male factor. And then there are other patients uh, who might have a history of poor fertilization or a history of other factors in the cycle that cause it to be done. On a worldwide basis, ICSI is done in well over 60% of patients. So the two-thirds that we do in this country is a little bit high, but not much. And so we're probably at about the right number. And if a doctor recommends ICSI, it's probably uh, the right thing for a patient to do. You can see there are very few cycles in the report with unstimulated cycles, and this is the, because if you do not stimulate the woman's ovaries, you have a likelihood of getting only one egg or maybe not even one egg that's good enough to be fertilized. So the chance of pregnancy is very, very low in unstimulated cycles. There may be the very rare patient for whom it's appropriate, but I think it's an extremely, very, uh, extremely small population for whom that type of cycle is worthwhile. Gestational carrier means that another woman would carry the baby, and that can be very successful in situations in which a woman has lost her uterus because of uh, cancer treatment, for example, or because the uterus is very abnormal as a result of uh, the woman being born uh, that way or other damage uh, to the uterus from adhesions or other problems, or sometimes because the woman who uh, would like to have a baby has a serious medical problem, uh, perhaps a heart problem or liver problem or other medical problem. And then the other two uh, procedures are PGD or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which can be used for uh, identifying very serious medical problems in, uh, in the embryo. And it's certainly a good indication for uh, diagnosing the embryo. The other is PGS, or pre-implantation genetic screening, which I'm sure we'll discuss a bit more, which is being used a lot more now. It's still a little uh, difficult to know exactly which patient should have PGS, but it certainly seems to be very appropriate for an increasing number of patients. And ESET is elective single embryo transfer, which is just 6%, and this is done in order to reduce the multiple pregnancy rate. Uh, and it's something that personally I think should be done a lot more often than it is now. But it's only been done about 6% in 2010. Um, well, you answered, well, one of my questions was what type of percentage should we be looking for for the elective single embryo transfer? One of our missions here at Creating a Family is to stress that multiple births are not the preferred outcome to uh, infertility treatment. So we'd end up talking quite a bit about uh, single embryo uh, transfer uh, and about the possibilities for that. Uh, what type of percentages should, if you're selecting a clinic, should you be looking for um, with the uh, selective, -E -E selective single embryo transfer? I think that's a very, very difficult question. My personal view is that we should be able to increase that to about 35% of patients, but uh, and maybe even more. It should be noted that in Sweden right now, 70% of patients have single embryo transfer, and in Japan it's also 70%. But those countries have very, very different health care systems. 
They have very different ways of approaching IVF. So it's not a simple answer about how much ESET should be done, but I firmly believe it should be done more than it's being done now, especially in younger patients. And I hope that with uh, the newer technologies we're seeing that uh, maybe in a decade it will be at 50% in the United States. Um, so I don't think there's a single right number, but it's something that every young patient with a good prognosis should be considering. And it's something and, uh, that people I, uh, should look at when they're selecting a clinic as well. Um, to be seeing numbers above, you know, 1% or 2%, you know, it's, it would be nice to see as well. Okay. I, I think Lawrence somebody. had a thought about that too. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was uh, I was going to add my uh, my wholehearted agreement. <laughs> and um, interesting, uh, um, when one looks at the, the SART uh, reports, uh, one of the areas that you could argue should be uh, the majority of times a single embryo transfer would be the donor egg scenario. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, uh, I don't believe there's a, a percentage uh, available to look at on the report for um, uh, percent uh, elective single embryo transfer. There is the average number of embryos transferred um, figure. And from that, I guess one could infer you know how often is uh, one embryo transferred or two, but you know clearly the society guidelines would say that's the the best prognosis category, the highest risk for multiple pregnancy and and there you know I think patients should really ask the clinic um what what is their guidance and if if they're suggesting um that two is the average well that you know that would should warrant further discussion. Especially what you're speaking yes. of with the donor eggs. That's a it's an excellent point. We'll come, we're going to come uh, and we'll discuss that further because that is one of the, the specific statistics given under donor eggs is the average average number of embryos transferred. Um, Dr. Udolph, another thing at the top of the um, pages on this is I'm looking at CDC, but I believe it's also at the top of the SART is um, patient diagnoses. Is that something that is if you have a specific diagnosis, uh, and you may not when you're when you're choosing a clinic, often you don't. But assuming you have a specific diagnosis, should you be looking at the uh, to see would would the would clinics differ very much on the diagnosis of their uh, of the kind of the demographics of their of their uh, patients as far as what their diagnosis is. So is it really that important for pe for people to look at when choosing a clinic? Yeah, I, I'd say, um, you know, if you look at all the statistics on the report, and, and there's so much to look at, that mm -hmm. uh, from a patient perspective, I don't know if, if that section is so critical. Um, I mean, there are many things that the physicians and, and uh, epidemiologists, statisticians can infer from this data because we know that some of these categories are associated with higher pregnancy rates or some are associated with lower pregnancy rates. Um, I mean, just as, as an anecdote, I guess, is, you know, when we're at meetings and we talk with colleagues and, and everyone seems to, to say, well, you know, I always have the toughest, toughest patients. And this is some way to somewhat objectively analyze, does this clinic really have mainly the toughest patients? Well, who would those be? Um, I think one could uh, argue that diminished ovarian reserve is, is probably one of the uh, categories associated with the poorest outcomes. And so mm -hmm. if a, a high percentage of your patients are in that category, then, yeah, that, that, that might be something to consider when looking at success rates. Conversely, if most of your patients are tubal factor, 
that's supposed to be one of the higher success rate categories. But again, from a patient perspective, I, I think this is um, a bit complicated and uh, maybe not uh, something one should uh, focus on too much when when choosing a center. Yeah, I, I mean, agree I, yeah, with Lawrence on that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the problem is that it could be there's so much, there's so much information that it can be overwhelming. So it's mm-hmm. nice to know, okay, that's something we don't really have to focus on at this point. All right, now moving down to the pregnancy success rates. Um, they divide uh, into type of cycles, um, and uh, the divisions under type of cycles are fresh embryos from non-donor egg, frozen embryos from non-donor egg, and then donor egg. Um, so, And then donor egg is subdivided into fresh and frozen. Um, so let's kind of just talk in general first about uh, under fresh embryos uh, for uh, non-donor eggs. Uh, the, the, some of the things that are listed are the number of cycles they do. Well, let's just talk about that for a minute. Is that important that, that should you be looking for a certain number of cycles um, that a clinic does? Uh, Dr. Adamson? You know, I think it's uh, reasonable to see how many cycles a clinic does, but there are very good data out there that show that the size of a clinic uh, is not really associated with the pregnancy rates uh, very often. And I think uh, as long as a clinic is doing a reasonable number of cycles, and people would argue about what reasonable is, but maybe... uh, you know, at least 75 or 100 cycles a year that that they are probably going to be doing enough to be able to get good pregnancy rates. Larger programs have advantages and uh, that they have a lot of experience, but sometimes they're a little bit less personal. And there are a lot of programs doing 150 or 200 cycles a year that get excellent pregnancy rates. So I think the size is not completely irrelevant, but I certainly don't think it's the most important factor either. Okay. All right, so that's the, so that's one thing to consider. All right, then there's a the next statistic is percentage of embryos transferred resulting in implantation. What does that exactly mean, Dr. Udolph? Well, here you're looking at uh, patients that have gone through the process of IVF and had an embryo transfer, mm-hmm. and so they'll break it down into different clinical outcomes. Um, Pregnancy uh, would imply clinical pregnancy, so this is not only a positive uh, blood test, but uh, ultrasound evidence of a a pregnancy, a gestational sac. And the distinguishing factor here is that um, the next statistic will be live births, and that obviously is going the next step, Um, and the difference being oftentimes that people may miscarry. Um, I should so, have mentioned that at the beginning. There are three different, and thank you for uh, doing that, there are three different percentages that are given that might be of interest. One is implantation, the second one is pregnancy, and the third one is live birth, and you've explained the difference between that. Um, all right, so those are the, the and, and, and the statistics that, how how would one, Dr. Udolph, compare those? Like what what averages should we be looking for? Well, the the SART and CDC database, uh, you know, one of the main values of the database is that it it can uh, it provides you uh, averages uh, nationwide, you know, all reporting centers. So it gives you some frame of reference. You have hundreds of clinics 
supplying data and, and you have you know, a, a reference point to see, well, is the clinic that I'm interested in somewhere in this ballpark or are they mm-hmm. way off? And if they are way off, then, then why? You know, is there a reasonable explanation? And there might very well be. Um, and in either direction, if they are much higher than uh, would be average uh, for the, for the uh, country, um, is there an explanation for that as well? Um, so, I, you know, that's, that's getting into the, the real issue at hand here is, is how one uses these statistics um, in uh, deciding uh, the center that they might choose when, in fact, the um, you know, key in the information provided by the CDC and SARD is that it's not intended that this data be used to really compare center to center. Okay, we'll get, and we will get to that exactly because we want to talk about some of the disadvantages or downside to trying to compare stats and centers. All right, first I want, though, to make sure we understand what even what the statistics mean. All right, um, Dr. Adamson, the next is a series of statistics are percentage of retrievals resulting in live birth, percentage of transfers resulting in a live birth, and then percentage of transfers resulting in a singleton live birth. So kind of just in general, if, if, uh, if, you, uh, if it's okay to group those together, explain how those differ. Sure. Um, I actually think the most important uh, number um, would be one that's, that's not here, and that would be the percentage of uh, uh, cycles resulting in a singleton live birth. And that is because when a couple uh, or patients are sitting in front of me in the office, I think the important thing for them to know is that if they start an IVF cycle now, what is the chance they will take home a healthy singleton baby? I mean, a healthy singleton baby is really the outcome we want. Uh, I tell mm-hmm. all my patients I'm a twin, so I think twins are fine, and I love my brother, and uh, mm-hmm. he's fine, and I think I'm okay. But the reality of it is that twins carry twice the risk of a serious permanent physical or mental disability or death for each baby and uh, also uh, a doubling of risk for the mother. So the goal is to get a singleton baby. And the goal starts when the couple decide to start an IVF cycle. So I think uh, the single number here that I think is the most important would probably be a combined one. But other than that, it's uh, cycles that start that end in a live birth, uh, which for 2010 was 41.5%. And then the percentage of transfers resulting in a singleton live birth was 31.4%. So what that means is that there's a large percentage nationally, of course, of multiple pregnancy, which is something that we're really, uh, really trying to deal with. Yes, we are. And and we're doing our best here to help spread the word. All right. So of the of the ones that that that, that three that I just mentioned, three stats. The one that you would say to focus uh, to focus in on is the percentage of transfers resulting in a singleton live birth. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and then there is a percentage of cancellations. Um, Doctor Udolf, uh, why would uh, why is that important? And uh, and and what is the average, if you happen to know, uh, for the I guess 2010 is the last year CDC is listing. Typically, the cancellation rates will be relatively low. Um, let's see. I'm trying to see here. Uh, maybe a percent or two or something yeah. like that. And it's not always a bad thing to can I mean if 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 a woman has hyperstimulated or for whatever reason it's you know, you do there are times when one needs to cancel a cycle. 
It, it's a tricky statistic. Uh, as you mentioned, there are uh, reasons where, uh, you know, um, the prudent medical approach would be to cancel the cycle as difficult as that might be. It might be for hyperstimulation. Um, it could be other medical issues that come up uh, unexpectedly. We've all had things happen. I had a patient had an appendectomy in the middle of a cycle. Things happen. Oh. Yeah. Um, bad luck. I, yeah, right. Very bad <laughs> luck. But uh, what's in these numbers, and, and could be a little bit concerning, if Again, you're looking at a clinic that is it is either very uh, much higher than the national average or very much lower than the national average is, is why. And I, I've I've seen programs and have colleagues that you know are are many fold higher than the national average, and I've asked, well, how does that come to be? And sometimes there are extrinsic factors that maybe aren't uh, so intuitive. For example, um, I know uh, of a practice where the that uh, there's a predominant healthcare uh, provider for the insurance provider for uh, the patients in that practice, and they uh, provide the patients with an infertility benefit. That's great, but it's a very limited number of cycles, and it's a lifetime. And uh, oddly enough, they don't count the cycle unless one has an egg retrieval. Um, so the, the doctor, odd. yeah, but that's how they set it up. And so the doctor continuously uh, is going through this process of of discussing the issue with his patients in cycle, is is this cycle really good enough to use up one of my three lifetime benefits? That's kind of a difficult discussion. You know, maybe you could do better, but this one isn't too bad. And and really, for for no fault of anyone on purpose, they wind up with a, a higher cancellation rate. Um, so. It, it's a it, the statistic can be manipulated by many different factors, some not so obvious. And again, I think the general advice is if, if a particular clinic you're interested in has a statistic that's just you know way off the average, then I would encourage patients to discuss the issue with their uh, doctor and try to find out why. Okay, I would really advice. like to agree with uh, Lawrence on that. Uh, and I think that was an excellent example that he gave about the type of situation that could occur in a particular clinic that could create a very uh, unusual-looking number. And uh, I think these numbers are actually quite accurate overall, but there are many, many factors that cause them to be created. And uh, patients who are looking at these numbers when they see something abnormal uh, don't want to think that it necessarily reflects something good or something bad. Uh, it's something that needs to be interpreted. So I would uh, really, uh, really strongly agree with Lawrence on his comments about that. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about understanding the CDC IVF success statistics. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can connect with us two ways. One, Dawn Davenport One would be to connect with me, and the other one is Creating a Family, all one word written together. On Facebook, there are three places to connect with us. Again, you can connect with me personally, Davenport One. Or you can like our Facebook page, uh, or you could join, our, not or, but say and, you could join the Creating a Family Facebook support group um, to find either the page 
or the support group, the easiest way is to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and both the page and the group will pop up. You can like the page and join the group. It is a closed group, however, uh, that means that you just need to be approved, and uh, once you uh, click to join, uh, we will approve you and welcome you on. Okay, Dr. Adamson, the next group, uh, you've already more or less kind of talked about it, but let me, uh, let's just kind of mention them here. We, the, the next group of statistics are the average number of embryos transferred. Then, directly obviously related to that, is the percentage of pregnancy with twins, the percentage of pregnancies with triplets or more, and the percentages of live births with multiple infants. So those, if you want to just kind of talk in general about how you think that patients should view these statistics when they're looking at them, that would be helpful. Well, certainly uh, these are very important statistics, and I think uh, the uh, overall multiple uh, birth rate is very important, and generally speaking, lower is certainly better. And certainly uh, the triplet rate, we definitely really want to have at zero uh, so I think it is uh, critical to look at those numbers. One of the big problems we have now is that the multiple rate is actually going up again a little bit in the United States. And the Why reason is, is yeah. well, the, the reason is actually very interesting, and I think very unfortunately it's not a reason that you can read anywhere on this very detailed report. And the reason has to do with the average number of embryos transferred, which for 2010 for under age 35 says 2.0 embryos. But the report does not say on what day of uh, embryo development they were replaced. And so embryos can be replaced generally on about day three, called the cleaved uh, embryo. It's a six to eight cell embryo. Or embryos can be grown out another couple of days and culture medium to what's called a blastocyst at around day five, sometimes day six, where they're anywhere from, say, 150 to 250 cells, something like that. And the thing is that blastocysts actually have a much higher implantation rate, about 1.4 times as high as day three, but only about half the embryos grow from day three to day five. So what happens is if you put two blastocysts back on day five, the chance of a pregnancy is much, much higher, but the chance of a multiple pregnancy is much, much higher also. And this has become a big problem because many clinics now want to get a pregnancy, and so they grow the embryos out to day five, and they transfer a blastocyst on day five, or in fact two blastocysts. But the multiple pregnancy rate with two blastocysts in a young patient is very often over 50%. And this is a very, very serious problem. And nowhere in the report, not the CDC report or the SART report, can we see what percentage of embryos are transferred on day three and what percentage are transferred on day five. And I think this is a major flaw and a major problem in both the reports right now. Uh, And it's something that I know uh, CDC and SART are looking at, but I think it's something that they really need to get in the report very, very quickly, because this is the reason we're seeing an increase in the number of multiples. That's interesting. I, I would certainly, I would certainly agree, and I would certainly agree, and add that the same problem is happening in frozen embryo transfer. Uh, yeah. That more of the frozen embryo transfer cycles are now happening in blastocysts. They probably have a similar implantation potential, and uh, people 
are not adjusting uh, in their practice patterns in that years ago the frozen embryos didn't do as well. So you were, they were transferred earlier, there more embryos were transferred. Uh, but now I think uh, many clinics, and ourselves included, you know, treat the frozen embryos just about the same as the fresh uh, with respect towards multiple pregnancy risks. Yes, and I so agree the, what with you're that saying, too. The fundamental problem is that, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, is that what, where the uh, uh, American Society of Reproductive Medicine guidelines on how many embryos to transfer, uh, which uh, and just roughly would be, uh, say, below the age of 35, uh, if uh, would be up to two. Is that correct? Just trying to remember pretty quickly. It's up to two. It's up one or two on day three, and on day five, uh, they really recommend one. But what's happened is that uh, people have not adjusted, as Lauren says, uh, especially in the younger patients, and I'd say even under age 38, you know, 37 and under, uh, people have not really adjusted the practice of transfer. So many younger patients are getting two blastocysts, and of course. Um, one of the, you know, quote, beneficial, end of quote, results of this is that the pregnancy rates look higher and the implantation rates, uh, you know, certainly are better with blastocysts in day three. So by doing this, the numbers look better until you look at the number for multiple pregnancies. So in my view, um, I think it's a problem because the the numbers that people want to see reported look better, but the real number that counts, the proportion of singleton babies goes down and it's actually it's actually less quality, lower quality health care, but it looks better in the report. And I think I think that's a very huge uh, dilemma. And, and it's and it's something that the statistics seem to be feeding because it, you can uh, we, we, in a question we're going to have later on how you manipulate stats that that is a way to do that. I have a question. Uh, let's see. I'll direct this to Dr. Udolph. Um When they give the percentage of pregnancies with triplets or more, does that include the percentage of pregnancies that uh, is it a total number, or does it exclude those where patients selectively reduce the triplet or, or quadruplet or whatever pregnancies down to a, um, a singleton or twin um, uh, pregnancy? I believe the statistic is a live birth. Um, I would have to you know, um, refer to the report to confirm, but I believe the statistic is a live birth of triplets or more. Uh, so, so to answer that question, if you had selective reduction from three to two, then that would be a, a live birth of twins. Okay, so that would not be... It would not reflect, uh, and, and Dr. Adamson, is that it, uh, your understanding too that that statistic does not reflect the number of multiple pregnancies conceived, uh, assuming that some of those, and, and I don't know the percentage, but I would think it's fairly high, reduced to twin or um, even some reduced to singleton. So is that your understanding my, as well that it doesn't my, reflect? My, under, my understanding is that the, uh, my understanding is consistent with Lawrence's on this. I think okay. it's not taken into account. I'm, I, I'm, and the reason I believe that is that I don't believe that they are, um, you know, uh, able to, you know, determine those uh, those numbers because understand that when the patients uh, go through in vitro fertilization, the vast majority of patients are referred on from the IVF clinic, usually between eight to ten weeks. 
mm-hmm. and procedures uh, procedures that could reduce the number would generally be done after that. So um, th- those numbers are not collected, uh, and uh, so this this you know also creates a, a problem. Of course, uh, certainly, I personally believe that uh, uh, pregnant what's called pregnancy reduction is reasonable in some situations uh, where it has to be used as a, or it could be used uh, to help protect the health of the mother. Uh, but at the same time, I absolutely do not believe that it should be used as a treatment strategy in that more embryos are replaced with the idea that if multiples exist, pregnancy reduction can be done. So it's certainly my view it should be um, a technology that's available in the very unusual situation, but certainly not one that's included in the in the treatment uh, construct, the management a paradigm uh, a merit management approach to the patient. At least that's my view of it. Okay. Um, of the statistics now that that, that are remaining, um, the type of cycles, um, it's a little redundant in the sense that, that we've already talked about what they mean. Uh, we uh, The statistics are given for the frozen embryos from non-donor egg, uh, and as well as uh, the uh, donor egg cycles. And then the donor egg, egg cycles is broken into between fresh embryo and frozen embryo. Um, let's see, Dr. Adamson, would you agree then that of those, uh, under each of the frozen embryo uh, from non-donor egg as well as under donor egg, three things are listed, number of transfers, percentage resulting uh, live birth, and the average numbers of embryos transferred. Both of those those three statistics are given um, and we've talked about those. I would assume then that you would also think that the, probably the most important of those three statistics, uh, those statistics to look at would be the average numbers of embryos transferred. And would I yes, be interested? I think that's, that's very important with with donor eggs uh, because uh, obviously, generally, the prognosis or the chances of pregnancy are much better because the eggs are almost always coming from a very young uh, donor. And so it's important to uh, limit the number of embryos replaced because um, you want to avoid multiples. And a point that we haven't really been able to make yet is that there are good data in the literature that if a single embryo is put back in a fresh cycle and uh, the second embryo that could have been replaced at the fresh uh, with uh, with the fresh cycle, so you could you could choose to replace one or two. If the second one, instead of being replaced, is frozen and replaced later, um, at the end of the day, the the live birth rates are almost the same between the two groups. So two fresh at one time, or a fresh single transfer followed by a frozen thaw single transfer later, if necessary, uh, results in. Uh, not statistically different live birth rates, but with a tiny fraction, one or two percent twins in the single plus single transfer versus, as you can see, uh, over 30 percent twin rate if you put two back at once. And so patients should be reassured that, uh, as Lawrence pointed out, with vitrification, which is basically a a newer uh, type of technology in the last several years, used to freeze embryos, the pregnancy rates with frozen thaw embryos are essentially the same as with fresh embryos. So the patient is not losing uh, babies by having uh, an embryo, that second embryo frozen. 
We actually have done uh, a Creating a Family show uh, with the lead researcher on that study and have talked about that in depth. Um, and for um, people who are interested, uh, go under general information for in- infertility under the infertility resources on our site, and we list that show, and, and you can listen to it, and it is it is fascinating um, as well. All right, uh, I'd like to take a moment to thank one more gold sponsor. It is, again, through their generous support that we can bring you this show, uh, and uh, that is Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. All right, we've gone through kind of a bird's-eye view of understanding what the statistics are and what they mean and which ones we really should pay most attention to and which ones we can kind of you know, just not have to really focus on so that we've reduced our numbers. But now let's talk about some of the downside to relying on statistics to select a clinic. We've, you've alluded to that, both of you, in, in speaking um, but I, I think it's important that, to note that a lot of people do utilize the statistics. It's one of the few things that they have to go on when, when selecting. So let's talk about some of the, uh, the downsides. Dr. Udoff, what are, uh, why should people not rely on stats, the statistics only, when selecting a clinic? There are really a host of reasons. There, there's so many different possible reasons why a statistic uh, might be unusually low or unusually high um, from one clinic to another compared to the national average. Uh, I know Dr. Adamson's aware that our literature's got a, a lot going on now talking about uh, banking cycles. You know, the, the whole issue here is that the changes in practice, uh, changes in technology are advancing so quickly that the CDC SART has not been able to really keep up, and and well, so there are many things banking? that are, right. Explain so what you mean by banking cycles? Right. So the, the, there are several different types of cycles in which either eggs or embryos could be banked. So if we use the embryo example first, um, it could be in which a patient goes through the IVF process, has eggs retrieved, embryos created, and those embryos are frozen with no immediate intent for pregnancy. Maybe this is a patient that has cancer and and due to undergo chemotherapy, and so this was to uh, preserve fertility. Well, yeah, and there's new research that shows that, uh, in fact, that the pregnancy rates, and there's some research that would indicate that the pregnancy rates might even be higher um, with the assumption that the woman's body would have have not have just been stimulated and there may be, therefore, the uterine lining. I think that's at least the hypothesis. So more people might be saying, "Let me go through the retrieval and just bank them for a while, and then you know let my body you know re- return to normal and then start again." So yeah, go right. ahead. there are any number of reasons why somebody would bank. Right, and that's the short-term banking. So if the intent is for fertility preservation and long-term banking, then then it's it's right. legitimate not to report that as a cycle start because there really is no immediate intent to create a pregnancy. Ah, uh, yeah, I see your point. But the, okay. the problem is the short-term banking, yeah, in a clinic such as ours where we do a lot of PGD cycles, um, it, you know, people can approach that different ways. Because we have all the in-house genetics, that we, our intent is to try to have a fresh embryo transfer. Other clinics may say, well, we're going to freeze. We can't get the results from the genetic tests back fast enough. Um, 
but they're interpreting the um, the language from CDC SART a little differently and saying, well, since I'm not going to transfer um, a fresh embryo, you know, then I'm not going to count this as a cycle. And, and so th that's a big difference between those two clinics. If a lot of your cycle starts don't wind up having transfers, then they're actually obviously that's a zero. They're they're not going to have any chance of a pregnancy. If those cycle uh -huh. starts don't ever show up, then they're 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 actually hidden in the statistics. They may eventually find their way down to frozen embryo transfer data, but you know there are some uh, clinics that have reports where if there's actually uh, a good bit uh, higher numbers of frozen embryo transfer cycles than they are fresh, which is kind of a curious situation. And it suggests that they may be a, a program in which the patient goes through multiple rounds of the first part of IVF, stimulation, collecting eggs, creating embryos, saves up these embryos. Uh, the, maybe the embryos uh, in some cases may go through genetic testing. And then once you've isolated uh, that genetically uh, normal embryo in terms of chromosome number, then the transfer is done. And so that could show up just as a single frozen embryo transfer, whereas another clinic might interpret it very literally, as we do, a cycle starts a cycle start. So that would have been four cycles um, to wind up with, you know, potentially one uh, transfer. And so the, the, that's kind of a big effect on the, the numerators and denominators that are used to calculate these statistics. Okay, that's I, I completely agree with Lawrence, and uh, you can see that uh, that sort of protocol that's used in the clinic that can have a huge impact. Uh, so one patient may have, say, the equivalent of three cycles of ovarian stimulation and screening of embryos that are grown out to day five, and so you basically have three cycles. You have growth to day five, and you have screening of the embryos, and then that transfer is compared against one other cycle with no screening and a replacement on day three, and you have totally different clinical situations. And what's important to note that uh, we haven't discussed yet, but the concept of total reproductive potential, or if a patient, there's a the concept or ideas if a patient does one cycle of ovarian stimulation and an egg retrieval, that you then count how many babies do you get from that one stimulation and egg retrieval, whether or not you put back fresh embryos or frozen, whether you screen embryos or don't screen them, whether you do day three or day five transfer, but how many babies do you get from that one stimulation? And the reason for thinking about it this way is that the largest amount of resource utilization, the biggest cost to the patient, the cost in terms of her time, the cost in terms of the uh, you know health risks of the body, of the stimulation and the egg retrieval, the anesthesia, well, and, also and obviously the cost, obviously yeah. the cost, the biggest cost, the money cost, most of that cost would go into the ovarian stimulation and the egg retrieval. And so the concept is take that as a unit and see how many babies come out the other end. And what's true today, today is that we don't know whether putting a single fresh embryo back on day three and repeating that process two or three or four times from one cycle ends up with as many or more babies as doing you know, two or three cycles growing out to day five screening and putting blastocysts back. There are no data, in fact, that show all the extra cost and all the extra work 
results in more babies. What it does result in, as Lawrence explained, is it results in a higher apparent pregnancy rate on the first transfer you get because you've done all this selection and all this screening before you do that one transfer, which gets reported. But that doesn't mean you've got more babies. And so this is a huge issue, I think, in our specialty right now. And there's a lot of people working on how do we report this so that our, we know which patients should be treated which way. These new technologies are wonderful, but they need to be used, uh, uh, they need to be used appropriately for different patients. Dr. Adamson, is it possible then that the the stats, the fact that we are maintaining these statistics and that people are judging, and I, I'm using air quotes around the word judging, but judging clinics based on them, that, that these stats are driving treatment and that perhaps treatment decisions and perhaps the treatment decisions are not the best for the individual patient. Is that overstating? Uh, is it an overstated summary of what you no, said? No, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think uh, I think it's important for the patient and the doctor to have very honest conversation about the different protocols and approaches that can be carried out and which one is best for that individual patient. And I think we're still collecting data to know which protocol is best for which patient. They probably all will have a role to play different patients in different situations, but we're still... It's so new, as Lawrence pointed out, these technologies are so new that we're still trying to figure out what's best. And I think the reporting system is struggling to uh, keep up with the technology change and the, and the practice changes. Yeah. These are all, I think, very, very important points. If I were a patient, what I would really want to know is what is my cumulative probability of conception? You know, I'm, I'm at this clinic. I'm going to commit to a certain line of treatment. What's the chances I'll have a baby? And these statistics don't show you any of that. And that, it's, there, it's a hard statistic any, to come by. It, it, yeah, it is. It's so, and, and is there any of these statistics that are collected that would be an indicator, an indicator of that? A rough indication would be live births per cycle, but again, these are you know statistics in the sense of just putting down the the, the numbers and averaging it out at the end of the year. It's not the same as you know here's a patient she and, and partner begin treatment, and what's the probability of a pregnancy after one cycle? What's the probability if you add the frozen transfer? I mean these are the real life things that a patient would like to know and i think very few clinics um have that type of data cuz i know for us you know our resources are so focused in making sure we have all the cdc sart data that we just don't have enough uh, time energy and people to get what i think would be a even more useful statistic uh, which would be you know what is the cumulative probability of a line of treatment the chances that this is ultimately going to work combination often of of fresh and frozen, and this whole idea of uh, one at a time, which I think is a great idea, uh, but see that these things are connected, that if you had that statistic, then you could show that if one commits to this line of treatment, combination of fresh and, and possible frozen embryo transfers, then here's your bottom line chances of, of having a live birth. You know, cause Ron, I, can I think what patients can do... 
Uh, so, Go ahead. So I, I think what patients can do is to look at the reports and find a, you know, get some general idea of a clinic that looks reasonable. Go see the physicians and, and check out the, you know, the insurance and the physicians in the clinic and, and have, uh, as Lawrence has said, you sit down with the physician and say, for, for me, the person that I am at my age with my situation, what are the different approaches we could take and what are the benefits and risks, the pros and cons of a fresh plus a frozen or two fresh or a day three or a day five and discuss that with their physician and in that way make a decision that's best for them, a knowledgeable decision for the patient. But it does take a discussion uh, with uh, with their physician to really interpret the best approach for any given patient. Let me read this email that we received from Teresa. She said, I just wanted to let people know that not all clinics will see all patients. I think some clinics handpick the patients most likely to get pregnant. I was almost 41 when I went to an infertility clinic for the first time. The first clinic I went to would not take me as a patient unless I agreed to do donor eggs. I didn't want to do that option until I had tried IVF with my own eggs. I don't know how, I don't know how common this is. By the way, I was able to get pregnant with my own eggs. Sadly, I lost the baby, but at least I tried. I feel bad for my second clinic because I think I hurt their statistics. Um, she raises an issue of, of uh, that uh, another way that the statistics perhaps are not reflective of our driving treatment decisions, let's put it that way, is the uh, push towards donor egg. Um, how common is that, uh, Dr. Udolph, uh, that, that clinics might actually push patients quicker than the patient wants to be pushed towards donor egg because it affects their statistics? Yeah, I think you know, each clinic um, is going to have uh, their own approach to it. I know there are some clinics that uh, work very much by strict cutoffs uh, based on age, um, based on hormone levels such as the FSH or AMH. Um, I know in our clinic we take each case on an individual basis and it it's mainly um, you know, medical decision-making based on risk-benefit. If we think that the benefit uh, potential outweighs the risk and the patient understands the prognosis, then it's not unreasonable to try. But uh, different doctors, different clinics are going to approach this in, in different manners. And uh, like the, the, um, the email was suggesting, some will have pretty strict cutoffs. And, you know, they will say, no, I can't offer you treatment with your own eggs, but... Since these egg issues aren't pertinent to donor egg, then um, they, they may allow the patient uh, to proceed with, with donor. Mm-hmm. The other side of the coin is that sometimes in one's best medical judgment, uh, the chances of uh, success with a patient's own eggs are, are so remote that it really doesn't warrant this uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, high-tech and expensive um, treatment, uh, mm-hmm. that it may not be much of any better uh, outcome or statistical uh, a likelihood with this than just letting nature take its course, and sometimes it happens. Um, right, so she it's does not, not give simple. any of her, her her data that you know would indicate right. what her ovarian reserves are. So you're right; it, it's it may perhaps unfair to judge the the clinic not knowing. It sounds like there was an age cut off, but that we don't really know. That's a good right. point. Right. Um, we have time for one last question, and this will come from Sue Ellen. She says. Uh, what's the best place to find a list of infertility doctors? Do I need to find one near where I live? Um, it's really kind of two separate questions. 
Dr. Adamson, um, first of all, where where does the uh, we we list some links here to the on our uh, page for this? But would you go ahead and just where are some places that she can find lists of infertility doctors uh, based on where you live, and then perhaps address the issue of whether it's important to to choose a clinic near you. Well, I think uh, the clinic should be convenient enough that, that you can get to it. Most places in the country, I think that's possible now. Uh, but if it, it's worth traveling a little bit if necessary to get to a good clinic with the doctor you like. Uh, SART has uh, certainly lists of clinics and also the medical directors and Society of Reproductive Endocrinologists uh, has a list of uh, physicians and reproductive endocrinologists are the types of physicians who are almost invariably doing in vitro fertilization. So those would be two national organizations with lists of, uh, of doctors who are qualified. Right, and we link to both of those off of our How to Far Finding an Infertility Doctor or Clinic page. Um, lastly, to our audience, if you have enjoyed our show and you want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. The easiest way to do it is, well, there's a number of ways, but the easiest way is just go to our radio page and type in uh, or just click on the iTunes icon, and then you can just hover over the number of stars you want uh, and, and or write us a comment, and we would very much appreciate it. We have come to the end of our time, and we still have information to talk about, and it happens so often. Thank you so much, Drs. Udolf and Adamson, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in the discussion on the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information on Dr. Lawrence Udolf, you can go to the website for Genetics and IVF Institute, and it is GIVF.com. To get more information on Dr. David Adamson, you can go to the ARC website, which is ARCfertility, all one word, dot com. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciated the opportunity. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.